0: Let us uh, read from God's Word, and uh, it's John chapter 16, uh, verses 7 through 11. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, we are unable to comprehend the depth of love and grace that you extend toward us. We are unable to comprehend the depth of sin that uh, lives still within us. The presence of sin is there, though its power is broken. Lord, I pray that we would Be reminded today, remind us of both of those things, of the sin that is within us and of the grace that is given us that overcomes and breaks the power of sin. May we be able to hear your convicting and comforting word. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you guide my mouth and let me say exactly what needs to be said. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this passage is familiar, I'm sure, to many of you. Uh, What is this passage part of? It's a part of the Upper Room Discourse. Now, the Upper Room Discourse takes place at the very last week, that is a few days, the day before Jesus gets crucified. Now, he's sitting at the table with his disciples, and this is Passover celebration, and this is the very night that he is going to go away. And as he's preparing to go away, he's preparing them for the heartbreak that they're about to experience. He's preparing them, even though he is the one that's going to be crushed for our iniquities. He's the one that's going to be broken for our sins. He is preparing his disciples because he knows what will happen to them. He knows that when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will be scattered. We know a lot about this night. The Gospels tell us a lot about what happened, about how Judas betrayed Jesus, how Peter denied him three times. We know a lot about the physical sufferings that Christ was afflicted with. What we do not yet see, or we do not see clearly, because the Holy Spirit, as Jesus says, when he comes, he will continue my work. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. We do not yet see this conviction worked out in the disciples' lives. We do not see it in the text uh, a lot of people, and this has been a tradition in the church for a long time, like to meditate on the physical sufferings of Christ. You know, you've probably seen the Mel Gibson's movie, Passion of Christ, right? Well, the problem with, with that movie is it can't capture what really happened. It can only th- tell us physical suffering of Christ, that Christ was crucified, and that was a horrible death. Be crucified, you hung on the cross until you asphyxiate. You have to, to just breathe, you have to raise yourself up and experience pain from the nails with which you're nailed to it. This is a, a punishment commonly used by Romans for all kinds of criminals. Uh, when Spartacus led his rebellion in 70 BC, uh, after it was crushed, Many of the gladiators were crucified along the Appian Road, and they were there for days. It took, takes two or three days to die on the cross. So Jesus, physically speaking, his death was fairly quick. Remember when the pilot was surprised that he died so quickly? He was surprised by this. But the, the part that we do not see, At least it's not apparent until the Spirit convicts us of it. What we do not see is the real suffering of Christ. The deep suffering of Christ. Suffering of the Son of God. On the cross. This we do not easily see. And the reason why we can't see it. Is because our eyes are shielded. By sin. Now. Uh. Jesus says here there are three things that the Spirit will convict the world of. And the first of these is sin. And Jesus is kind enough to give us a definition of what sin is. because see, a lot of times we're confused about what is sin and what isn't. Or how far does it go? We're confused about truly how broken we are spiritually. Physically, in every other way. And Jesus gives us a definition of sin. What is that definition? You will find it uh, in this passage. He says in verse 9, Concerning sin, because they believe, they do not believe in me. They do not believe in me. Who is they? The world. People. Us. Now, we will not be able to cover everything that is implied here, everything that's said here, because there's just so much. It's one of the richest parts of Scripture. You know, the upper room discourse as a whole, there's, you can spend hours just thinking about it, and uh, it sort of gets into you. After a while, the Spirit just brings it into you. But we will talk about sin. And what sin, Jesus describes sin as a sin of unbelief unbelief. That is what is the definition of sin, Jesus' definition of sin. And it is something that we cannot easily see. He uses this word, he says, the spirit will convict. And the term is a legal term. His spirit, even though he calls him a, a paraclete, which is a helper, translated as helper in the ESV, spirit is also kind of like A prosecutor. He's the kind of helper that's gonna come and say, Listen, you know, you really messed up, and this is where. This is where your problem is. Your problem is you do not believe. But you will say to me, rightly so, you're an American Christian, you say, Wait a minute, I believe in Christ, I'm good, right? We can move on. The next one. But the problem is, and as you read in John earlier, where where Jesus has this whole discussion with, which we'll sort of reference a little bit, he has a discussion with Jews who believed in him, right? And he tells them in John 6, 29, when they ask him, what do we do so we do the works of God? And if you're in any way familiar with the Jewish tradition, you know how important that question is. The works of God are mitzvot. It's the good things that you do to keep God's law. So they're asking him, what is the work, you know, what are the works? What are, what are the good things we could do to be God's people? And he says, this is the work of God. You remember what he said? This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. That you believe. And you'll say, wait a minute, but that's easy. I already believe. Yeah, in America, one of the problems we have in this country is we're too familiar with Christian terminology. We're too familiar with religion, as it were, as Christianity, as religion. And the word believe is probably one of the most abused words in the English language. It's abused so much that it almost doesn't mean anything. But how does scripture define belief? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Well, you know where I'm going to go next. If you know your Bible, the definition of faith as we find in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. It's a familiar passage, I'm sure. And he says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Uh, By faith, in verse 3, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen, again he talks about things being seen, was not made of things that are visible. This is the part that is hard for us. Because we cannot see the depth of our own depravity. We can easily see the depth of other people's depravity, I tell you that. But we can't really see the depth of our own depravity. We can't see how much our own sin blinds us. We can't see how difficult it truly is to believe in God. We think it's so easy. In America, faith is intellectual assent. I agree with something, so I believe in it, right? But you remember who we're dealing with here. And uh, author Hebrews reminds us, we're dealing with God who created the world, created the universe, who made you and me, who gives us breath to breathe each day? I have lived long enough that I have seen people die very, very quickly. In, in seconds. The life is so fragile. Who gives us breath and who takes it away? Why are we born and why do we die? Who gives us spirit command, it's time for you to depart? And who brings People to life. You know, we think so much about children and conception these days because of the abortion issue and stuff like this. But we forget that the opening of the womb and the closing of the womb is from the Lord. God is the one who gives children. You think you can have children? You think you can raise children without God's blessing? Without his hand guiding you all along? You can't. You you give birth to a child, you don't know what will become of them. You don't know where they're going to go. You can't control. Once they're adults, even, even as kids, you don't know how they will grow. But God knows. And that's why Scripture encourages us parents to pray for our kids, right? Because we can't control it. We can't know what will happen to them. But God knows. God knows. So God who made the world... This is the one we're supposed to believe in. How easy is it to believe in God who made the world, in a triune God who existed from time before time was time, who existed in a loving relationship, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, as some theologians call it, the dance of the Trinity, where the Trinity, each part of the Trinity, each member of the Trinity loves the other. There's love within God. There is fellowship within God. Our God is three in one, and this is not just some philosophical abstract point. This is very, very powerful. When I uh, was a young Christian in college, I had to debate a lot of people who were of other faiths, other religions, uh, Muslims and Buddhists and all kinds of other people. And one of the things that uh, was brought to me is St. Anselm's argument about uh, faith. St. anselms uh, it's called reductio ad absurdum, if you're into Latin. And uh, it means, I believe because it is absurd. I believe because it is absurd. And I remember as a young college student, I was like, this is a stupid thing to say. What do you mean? Faith is reasonable. It's perfectly clear. Everything is clear. You know, I understand the scriptures. I know enough to believe. And it's true. But now, as I'm a little bit older than I was back then, and have learned a few things, I view this argument very differently. I'm starting to understand what he meant. I believe because it is absurd. Because what Anselm is trying to say is that the gospel of Christ is so unbelievable, it is so, for lack of a better word, insane to our thinking, that if I were making up a religion, I would never, ever make up that kind of a religion. You know, Muhammad made up a religion, he was an armed goon for hire. So he made a religion that corresponded to what he was. You know, Prince Gautama, uh, whom we know as Buddha, he was a princeling who was uh, shut in from the world uh, in a in palace until one day, and the, everything in the palace was beautiful. Everyone was beautiful and everything was beautiful. So one day he wanders out of the palace and he sees a cripple and he sees a beggar and he sees uh, uh, someone who's old. And it just, it breaks his mind. He doesn't understand. So he makes a religion fit for that. A princeling who is detached from the world. But when you look at Christianity, when you look at Christ's faith, when you look at the path of Christ, you realize this is not something a human mind can make up. This has to be from God. This is so unbelievable. It is so hard to even begin to grasp that it has to be from God. Now, Jesus in America is he's a cultural symbol. Jesus in America he is he's a good guy overall, maybe a prophet, maybe a teacher, maybe even a saviour in a sense. But he is not, as he's presented in the scripture. He is not a son of God. And the son of man. Americans don't understand cosmic Christ. Christ as a member of the Trinity. It is not a common thing among our people to understand this. Because we've heard so much of the name of Jesus. We've heard so much of uh, all these terms. But what do they mean? How far do they go? When we hear the name of Jesus, what reaction do we get? Our our brother Jacob, uh, in the book that's called by his name, in English Bible is for reasons incomprehensible, called James. But uh, in the book of Jacob, I'm going to call him by his Hebrew name. In chapter 2, verse 19, he says, Oh, you believe in God? Good. Demons believe too, and they tremble. Now, I think many people in America don't even have the faith of de- demons because they don't even tremble. Because even if you tremble, at least it's a, it's a beginning, it's a start. But you don't tremble. You, you, you're familiar, too familiar with Christ, too familiar with Jesus. You have to believe that the universe was created by the word of God. Is that the message we get? Is that what this world says? That the universe was created by the word of God? No. What is the message of this world? A universe created itself, right? It just sort of banged itself into existence. Bang. There was nothing and then it exploded. It takes a lot of faith to believe that. Blind faith, I would say. You know. And this is, this is what this world believes and preaches. This is what people in our country, this is what people around the world think happened. Well, the scripture tells us differently. God created everything there is. How he did it, I'm not going to argue. It's not my business. I just know he did. But what's more important is that he created and he holds it together. It's a very integral part of believing in God, Creator. You see, in uh, when I talk to uh, my polytheist friends, I I tell them I can't believe in God who didn't create the world, and I cannot believe in God who does not keep the world together, because that's the kind of thing that happens in polytheism. So you have all these different gods, people worship all these different gods, right? But they're not creators. They're not makers of anything. They can't speak. They're dumb. But God who created the world, he keeps the world. You realize that this pulpit here, it's made of something, right? What is it made of? It's mostly empty space, actually. It's made up of these small, tiny little particles, tiny little things. Atoms and, you know, little things that float inside atoms. Now, what were to happen if the atomic bonds in this pulpit were dissolved? It would produce an explosion that would destroy probably the entire city of Dallas. That's what it means that God holds things together. If he were to let go, even for a moment, everything would be undone. American uh, horror writer H.P. Lovecraft, he, uh, he's the one that came up with the Cthulhu mythology, and he has this idea, he had this experience, where you get to the, uh, the edge of the universe, you pierce the veil, you look behind the veil, and what do you find behind the veil? You find a being that is so horrifying, that is it's bent on destroying you, that for the rest of your life you have nightmares thinking about that. You know, uh, um, Soren Kierkegaard, who is probably one of the few Christian philosophers in history, he, uh, he wrote a book called Fear and Trembling and Sickness Unto Death, where he explored this idea. He was talking about Abraham and how Abraham was ready to sacrifice his son he explored the idea of how truly horrible God can be. We think of God, the American view of God is therapeutic. as A Christian sociologist called it moralistic therapeutic deism. It's America's religion. But let me ask you this question. Who is the most dangerous being... In the universe. Now if you answer Satan. You need to go back and reread your Bible. Who is the most dangerous being in the universe? God. Who does God save us from? From himself. From his wrath. Scripture says it is a terrible thing. To fall into the hands of the living God. Poor Jonathan Edwards, he tried to explain this. He's he's most famous for the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And uh, a lot of people know him mostly just for that sermon. And he's ritually pilloried for it in all the academic circles in America. But all he tried to do was to show what the wrath of God would look like. When... uh, When we see that sin came into the world, we see that it came through a message of a certain dragon-like creature, serpent. And the message was very simple. God is lying, and I will give you a hidden truth if you only deny God in his creation. Now this... He's going to come to that parable that was read earlier. The parable is, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because there's a lot I can say about just that parable. But a few things I could say. The parable is the man built the vineyard. Who is the man? We understand it's God, right? God creates the world. He creates special, special people, his people in this world. He, this is the vineyard. Now, he gives it to to tenants. Now, who are the tenants? This is a little harder. In the parable here at the end, it's implied that it's the chief priests and uh, the leaders of Israel. And it's true. But there's another layer to this. There's another layer to this. Now, the... uh, The way that the tenancy works, if you don't know, in America there was this thing called sharecropping. Some of you may have heard of it, right? It's where you live in the land, you you work it, you get the produce out, and then when the time comes to pay, you pay in produce. So this was kind of the arrangement here. Uh, Now the servants come to collect at the time of harvest. And what happens? They get beaten, they get killed. Why do they get beaten and why do they get killed? Because the tenants don't want to give up the stuff, right? They don't want to give up the the, the things from the vineyard. And then comes the son. He sends his son, the owner, and he says, well, perhaps they will respect my son. They will be afraid to do something to him. Now, when the son comes, what do they do? They kill him. They kill the son of the owner. And then Jesus asks a question. He says, what will the master do to these people? And they said, he will put them to a miserable end. Okay. Now, this parable, I never really got it. Like I wrestled with it for a while in my life. I could not understand one thing. Why did they think that they would inherit the vineyard? You ask yourself this question. Why did they think that if they kill the son, that they will inherit the the vineyard? And this is where it starts to come home. Uh, Because they never believed that the master was coming back. So they thought, if we kill this guy, the Roman laws and the Jewish laws were, if you live in the land a certain amount of time, then there is no person who claims Possession of it, you could take the possession of that land. That's what they were counting on. That the master is never coming back. And that, my friends, is where our sin lives. This is where a problem is. We're just like these tenants. We think that our life is our own, we think that the stuff that we have is our own. This is why it's hard for us to truly believe in God. Who is the master of everything. Because we think. In our evil little hearts. We think. He's not coming back for it. He's not going to come back for his stuff. He's not going to take it. It's mine. Well. I got bad news for you. That's what you think. Got bad news for you. He is coming back. For his stuff. And when he comes. He will judge the world. And unless. You stand in the blood of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Unless you're redeemed, you will be judged as murder. We're reading Ten Commandments. Murder, we read about murder, and we read about theft, right? It's funny that people who are not believers, when you tell them about the gospel, when they try to justify themselves, they always say, Oh, I haven't killed anyone, and I haven't stolen anything. Guess what? You have. You have killed. Peter preached a sermon, Acts 3. You find this. He says, You have killed the author of life. If you think this is not about you, go back and reread that. You have killed the author of life. This is the charge that God brings against all of us. This is the charge by default. This is what's called original sin. In the Scripture, uh, a Shorter Catechism, Question Thirty-One, talks about effectual calling, and he and it says there that the question is asked there. So, what is effectual calling? And what it begins with is when the Holy Spirit works in us, and we're sufficiently convinced of our sin and misery, we embrace Christ as our Savior. This is something that we have a problem with. We're not sufficiently convinced. Holy Spirit needs to work in us more, wants to work in us more, to convict us of this. See, Cain killed his brother Abel. Why did he kill him? Do you think, you and I, do you think we're better? Do you think we're in a better shape? Do you think... There's something we can offer God instead of ourselves as a sacrifice? Do you think you could offer your own life? You know, there are people who, whose defense mechanism is to flagellate themselves, to beat themselves up, right? You Maybe you're that kind of person. Maybe you know someone who is like that. Let me tell you this. No matter what you do to yourself, no matter how much you beat your body, no matter... How much, what you cut or what you pierce or what you do with your members, there is never going to be enough for you to be your own redeemer. You will never be like Christ. What does the scripture say about Christ? How was his image tarred more than any of the sons of men? How marred was that image? And Christ, unlike you and I, he was not guilty. Of sin, he was not guilty of original sin. He had no sin on him, and yet he suffered the second death, which is the punishment for sin. See, for sin. See, we see we see cross, and we look at the cross, and we look at the physical suffering. The suffering, the real suffering, happened in the heart of God. It is a mystery of God, and I, I, we can dig in it for hours. The mystery of God is. How could God die? God can't die. If God dies, the world will stop. We will all die. And yet somehow, inside the heart of God, in Trinity, in the fellowship that was eternal, there was a break that happened. It is a mystery I do not fully understand. I will confess to you, brothers and sisters. I do not fully understand what I'm talking about. It's a marvelous thing. And it's a horrible thing. Christ experienced the horror of hell as he was separated from the Father. My God, my God, he said, why have you forsaken me? This is the, that, that Lovecraftian horror, or much worse than that. This is what is enough to give you nightmares. Christ suffered such a fate. Why? What did he do? He didn't do anything. It is we who did something. We denied God in his creation. Now you see, like descendants in the vineyard, we see the son, and we say, oh, let's kill him. Do you see this in yourself? See, a lot of times we think of ourselves as righteous people, but our righteousness is a righteousness of lack of opportunity to sin. This is how you can see that Sin ravages the world. It's wars, disease, it's broken relationships. We see sin at work everywhere, right? It's a powerful reality. It's undeniable reality. But ordinary people, when they become rich and famous, what's the first thing that we do that they do? We do. Indulge in all kinds of vices and sins, right? Sometimes unspeakable stuff. Why? Because sin lives in us. Because we are broken people. We need to be rescued. We need to be saved. From this heart of ours. From being murderers and thieves. We killed God's son. And we stole God's stuff. We claimed it for our own. And our only hope. And our only. The beautiful hope that we have in the scripture. the righteousness that Jesus says here in John 16. Our righteousness is. That God took the very thing that made us guilty and worthy of second death. He took that and used it to redeem us. Isn't that amazing? The very thing that would have been our undoing. And without Christ would be our undoing. I don't care how innocent you think you are. You're guilty of killing God's son. Think about what God will do. To those who killed his son, and we have this thing in America Is innocence of children, right? Children are not innocent. Whoever said the children are innocent never had kids or forgot. We know we don't have to teach our kids to sin; they learn it all on their own, very well. You know, there no one is innocent. No one is spared. Except the ones who stand in Christ. Our righteousness is Christ. He says, I'm going to go to the Father. This is not a simple walk. He was going to, oh, I'm just going to go visit the Father. and then He was talking about the cross. He was talking about the thing he was dreading the most. I'm going to go to the Father. And that is going to be your righteousness. Him going to the Father is our righteousness. And it's the kind of righteousness that cannot be taken away. Rejoice, brothers and sisters. We don't have to pretend to be God anymore. We don't have to try to steal God's stuff to make ourselves feel better. We don't have to judge other people and uh, think, oh, maybe I'm just I'm better than other people, so I'm okay. We don't have to do that anymore. Because now our righteousness is in Christ. It's not in ourselves. It's not on how good we are. Rejoice. It's an amazing thing that God has done. He has taken the very thing that would have killed us. Paraphrase a Russian poet. Sin is not a dress, it's a skin. You know what I'm saying? You can't take it off that easily. Sin would kill you if it could. But in Christ, you're made alive. Now, when God looks at you, He doesn't. He no longer sees. Well, here's a murderer of my son, and here's a thief that stole my stuff. When God looks at you now, if you're a child of God today, He looks at you and He says, "This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased," because He sees Christ in us. Think about that. How amazing is our redemption? I think we'll stop here. Let us pray and thank God for his great salvation. Our Father, we are amazed at what you have done. How you could have used the very thing that would have killed us with the second death. You used that to redeem us. So that now we despite the presence of sin still being in our lives, could be by your Holy Spirit made alive in Christ. Indeed, it is the Holy Spirit that brings to us the benefits of Christ. It is your work, Holy Spirit. We praise you for it. We thank you for it. We look forward to walking with you and learning from you more. Lord, despite our great guilt, despite our great sin, You have found a way to save us, to break us out of that prison, and to bring us to yourself. May we never forget the glory of your salvation. In Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.